Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to Holy Conversations, the podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. I'm Bob Kaler, just back from a meeting this week in Dallas, Texas, with a lot of regional leaders of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. And I had a chance to sit down with Keith Boyette, who is the president of the WCA, to talk about a lot of the issues that are going on right now. He gives some updates on where things stand talks a lot about the pension issue, which a lot of people have questions about, and Keith gives a great description of how the pension thing works. He also talks about how churches are going to be able to join the Global Methodist Church, and also gives some updates on some new resources that are coming out for those who want to talk more with others about the Global Methodist Church, as well as a preview of the Global Gathering and Global Legislative Assembly that's coming up here in May. So a lot of stuff that is important information we wanted to pass along to you. So here's my interview with Keith. Give it a listen. All right, I'm here with Keith Boyette in Dallas, Texas for a meeting and first time we've seen each other in person in a while, which for is sure, good. yeah, which is which is wonderful. So, um, so we're kind of talking a little bit about what is happening. We we have had the postponement of general conference. We had our initial conversation a few weeks ago. Catch people up on what's been happening since then. Well, so of course we announced that the Global Methodist Church will launch begin operations on May the first. I think that. Uh, took many people, especially those in the institution, by surprise, although we had been prepared for quite a while for that eventuality. As, as people may be, recall, the Council of Bishops um, has had a couple of meetings since our announcement. One, they decided that they would seek a declaratory decision from the Judicial Council on whether annual conferences could vote to withdraw from the United Methodist Church. Uh, now, the Judicial Council has already issued an opinion on this, Decision 1366, and in Decision 1366, they held that it was the reserved right of a annual conference to be able to vote to separate from the United Methodist Church. And in two recent decisions, 1424 and 1425, the Judicial Council quoted that same language from Decision 1366, reaffirming that decision. So um, it'll be interesting to see what the Judicial Council chooses to do now, but they've already spoken on this question. And um, the, the um, uh, Council of Bishops asked for an expedited review, and the Judicial Council has granted that. So briefs are due April the 12th, opening briefs, and reply briefs are due April the 22nd. So it would appear that the Judicial Council is going to try to rule on that question before annual conference season begins here in the United States. That's the first thing. And that's important for the, the vote for annual conferences to leave is important because it affects delegate uh, mixes for 2024 and for a lot of other reasons. Well, yes, it certainly would impact delegates for 2024 from annual conferences that would vote to withdraw. But I think um, the important consideration is that there are annual conferences that believe that they can carry that vote. And if they do, it will enable 
as many churches as want to go with that annual conference to do so, to align with the Global Methodist Church and not have to have votes in their individual congregations. And for some churches, that's a big thing to be able to have a vote at the annual conference level. In addition, um, it would mean that some of the fees that are trying, the, the expenses that are, are, are some annual conferences are trying to impose on departing churches likely would go away because it's the annual conference leaving, not local churches. Now, that is subject to some debate around pensions, but, but th- those, are, those are really important considerations. The ease with which a large number of churches could depart and the potential cost that would be associated with that departure. In the meantime, the Council of Bishops issued a circular, a, a not, not really a ruling, but more of a guidelines that they were going to use paragraph 2553 as their guidance, which is the paragraph that was inserted in the 2019 General Conference about churches disaffiliating over portions of, over questions of human sexuality. And that's the more expensive provision. Um, the other, the other one that we've talked a lot about is twenty five forty eight point two. And for you discipline nerds, you can look up all this stuff and and really get after it. But uh, we were kind of hoping to go with twenty five forty eight point two and then negotiate that with the annual conference. Wh- where does that all stand right now? And what is the deal with pensions? Because I think that's the big question that people are asking. One of the questions I have is, well, with the protocol. The, the pension obligation seemed to magically go away. But now, without the protocol, we're, we're looking at the possibility of needing in some annual conferences to pay significantly. So can you kind of give us the, explain it to me like I'm a, a kindergarten pastor who doesn't understand anything about pensions and actuaries and all that kind of stuff, because I, I don't. That's why I'm asking. Well, let's let's start back at the beginning of your question about the announcement that the Council of Bishops made about their preference for using 2553 and what happened to 2548.2. 2548.2 would have allowed a church basically to leave for any reason. They didn't have to assign issues of human sexuality as the reason. And they would leave to align with another evangelical denomination. And as is publicly known now, for more than a year, negotiations have been going on with a task force of the Council of Bishops to implement 2548.2. And so these bishops had no problem deeming the Global Methodist Church to be a another evangelical denomination, and they had no problem using 2548.2. So in my opinion, the move of the Council of Bishops to say, we're going to only use 2553 is a bad faith move. And I'm appalled that signers of the protocol, bishops who signed the protocol, are now lining up behind enforcing 2553. Because in no way does it Uh, Does 2553 represent the spirit of the protocol, which these bishops said that they were committed to trying to implement? So in my opinion, they are reneging on an agreement they made that they signed their names to, and I signed my name to. And a world-class mediator 
was the witness to all of that. If they want to go with that, well, it's on their, on them for what happens going forward. But the protocol and 2548.2 creates a way for an amicable separation to occur. 2553 is not amicable at all. No. Okay. Now, what, what, what would be the advantage of 2548.2? The primary advantage is that the unfunded pension liability, which I'll get into here in a moment, um, would not have to be paid as a lump sum at the time a church left. Instead, we had negotiated with this task force of bishops a promissory note uh, that would be principal only, that would be paid only, principal payments only on it would only be paid whenever the annual conference itself had to make a contribution toward unfunded pension liability. So if the annual conference never had to make a contribution, the church would never have to make a contribution. But if the annual conference made a contribution, then the church would make a proportionate contribution based upon what its promissory note was. It's a very fair way of handling this obligation that might exist. And if at the end of the day, the local church might never have to pay anything on unfunded pension liability if the annual conference never had to make it up. Now, that now gets to the other question. What is this whole thing about unfunded pension liability? And I think, um, I think many people do not understand what's going on here. Uh, and, and by the way, I would say Westpath is the, probably the only one who understands for sure what's <laughs> going on here. Okay, But, but um, every year, Westpath goes through a process with its actuaries of determining what amount of money needs to be in the plans, the pension plans, to pay out the benefits that will be due over the life of the plan. And they, they use all kinds of standard assumptions in calculating this. Life expectancy, historic performance of investments, you know, the amount of money that's there, the amount of uh, benefits that are likely to be paid out. And, and they come up with a determination of what is necessary to fund the pension plan. So what they do is they look at, okay, if we have this pool of money, X amount of money, and we use the assumption that it can be invested at a 6% rate of return over the expected life of paying out benefits, will we have enough money at the end of the day to pay everybody, okay? And, and that's called a funded valuation, okay? And historically, and right now, the pension plans of the United Methodist Church, each annual conference is a plan sponsor, but they participate in what is known as corridor funding. So they pool everything and they calculate it across the board, what the funded status is. Right now, the funded status is in excess of 100% of what's needed, okay? So if the plan just keeps rocking along as it has been, nothing is owed by anybody right now. But some churches are leaving, okay? And those churches will no longer be available to contribute to any shortfall in the pension plan once they've left. So... General Conference decided 
that if a church left, it would have to pay its proportionate share of that unfunded pension liability determined on a market basis. Now, that's different from a funded basis. It's a more conservative valuation for the the remaining churches that stay there. What it basically says is, let's look at the pool of money that's available, and instead of expecting a 6% return, we're going to expect a 3% return on the money, which is, of course, much more conservative. 6% is investing in equities, basically. Uh, 3% is investing in government bonds and in corporate bonds, much more conservative. But what that does is represent is, is result in a much higher number for the unfunded portion of it on a market basis. Not only that, General Conference decided that um, it would be done as if the church was going out and purchasing insurance on the commercial market to fund the plan going forward. And so a commercial insurer would charge a 10% premium in order to take that risk. And so they do the market calculation and then they add 10% to it, which results in a significant number that may never be actually incurred, but the church that is leaving, the individual congregation that is leaving, is being told that they need to put that money in now because they're not going to be around later to be called upon. Um, and, And so that makes a huge difference. Now, the protocol didn't make that go away. It did in the eyes of a local church in a sense, but it was still there. Okay, under the protocol, and of course the protocol would have had to been adopted by General Conference, and that's what would have made it available to people. Under the protocol, if your church left the denomination to join the Global Methodist Church, its pension liability would go with it into the Global Methodist Church. And the Global Methodist Church would be responsible to pay that unfunded pension liability if it were incurred. Um, And of course, it would look to those churches that came with it to pay that difference. But they wouldn't have to pay it all in one lump sum. They would pay it over time and to the extent that it became due. Okay? So... so, um, Without the protocol, we don't have that, uh, that ability because the, the, the current discipline does not permit uh, non-United Methodist entities to be planned sponsors of the United Methodist Pension Plan. So what would have happened under the protocol was that um, Westpath would have created two legacy plans, basically, One would have been the post-separation United Methodist plan that would have kept all of the clergy who remained in the United Methodist Church. And then there would have been a a United Methodist legacy plan that the global Methodist Church would have been the plan sponsor for. Um, and, And so that's how the division would have occurred. That's how the transfer of liability would have occurred to the global Methodist church. And that would have essentially permitted churches to leave under the protocol, not having to pay anything. They wouldn't have paid unfunded pension liability. There was no requirement that they pay apportionments, either that were past due or for a future year. 
Basically, they would have received their property free of the United Methodist Trust, and they would not have had to pay a single dollar to the United Methodist Church. So that's why this is such a, a um, struggle for churches to see that if we had the protocol, that would have been in the outcome. But now with 2553, we're being asked to pay the current year's apportionments, an additional 12 months of apportionments, the full unfunded pension liability, and then some annual conferences are proceeding to tack on additional things. Um, in fact, some annual conferences are saying, well, we want a percentage of the fair market value of the property. And, um, uh, you know, this, this is totally contrary to the spirit of the protocol. Yeah, so we have essentially a diocesan system now where each bishop is is essentially applying 2553 however they want. You know, here's the baseline, and that's what they've said. We're going to use this as our guiding principle, but they can add other things on top of it. That's what the that's what the judicial council has said that the the language of 2553 established a minimum of what could be asked for, but that annual conferences have the discretion to do more. Now, uh, you know, bishops think that they're very powerful. They seem to have this idea. And sometimes they act that way because there's no way to hold them accountable, okay? But the, um, but the reality is it's the annual conference that determines the terms of a separation agreement, of a comedy agreement. It's not the bishop. The bishop has to sign off on it, but ultimately it's the annual conference that approves it or doesn't approve it. Now, I'm encouraged because there are some bishops, despite the announcement of the um, Council of Bishops that a majority, I think the word they used was a substantial majority of the bishops agreed on 2553. There are some bishops who are still willing to explore 2548.2, explore alternatives to how to handle the unfunded pension liability. We're encouraged by the fact that there are bishops that are meeting with annual conference groups to explore this sort of thing. And my prayer is that as more as they announce what they're doing, that it'll put pressure on these other bishops, that it'll, it'll reveal their true spirit of how they're dealing with this. Uh, and, and that pressure will result in uh, some, some adjustment to what these other bishops are doing. It's very confusing. And I, I really appreciate you laying that out. That helps me understand it a lot more. And I hope hopefully for our listeners, it helps them understand it more as well. But let's let's take a typical scenario. I'll speak from one that I, I know well. So we have a, a church that, you know, is uh, considering uh, joining the Global Methodist Church, trying to get the numbers from their annual conference. What, what kind of steps should we be taking in terms of first dealing with the annual conference and then dealing with it at a local church level? Well, um there's many parts to this question. Uh, first, I would say that I am amazed that here we are uh, more than two years after 2553 has been adopted and that there are a number of annual conferences saying they still have not agreed on a process that will be used under 2553. Some of them are saying, we can't give you your unfunded pension liability number because we haven't determined what that is yet. 
that that is ridiculous because the law was effective the statute was effective with the adjournment of general conference and they've had two years to get to this place so in some annual conferences the the number for every church has already been published on the conference website north georgia is one example of that every annual conference ought to be able to do that it ought to be public knowledge for every church so I would say if a church is is contemplating moving, they ought to they ought to get that number from their annual conference. They should write to the conference treasurer, to the conference benefits officer. Westpath has already calculated these numbers for each annual conference. Each annual conference determines how they're going to apportion it among churches. There's several alternatives. Uh, in fact, I will I will send to you so that you can put in the show notes the statements issued by Westpath that spell out exactly how Westpath calculates the unfunded pension liability for the conference and how and the alternatives for how a conference can apportion it. It's all there in writing. It's not some big mystery. It is complicated because of the unusual language that we use, but it's all there. Uh, so number one, you should, each church should get that number. They're entitled to that number. Some conferences are balking at that and saying, no, 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 you need to make your decision whether you're going to leave the United Methodist Church before you have that number. Well, that's just wrong. Every church is entitled to this information, and it should be public knowledge. And, and frankly, conferences should be embarrassed that uh, they're not prepared to share that number. There's, not, there's no big mystery about it. Uh, now, by the way, recently, uh, an attorney who represents uh, some churches that are seeking to leave has asserted that there is no unfunded pension liability. That assertion is wrong when you understand the difference between funded liability and market liability. Right. Okay? But, but, okay, that's number one. I'd get the information. Number two... Um, I would, I would have your primary leadership body of your church discuss this. Um, the church that I planted went through about a six-week process of educating its primary leadership group, having, providing them with all kinds of information that's publicly available about the global Methodist church, what their options were. They then had a, a meeting at which they prayed over this, they debated it, and they cast a vote, and um, they made their decision, okay? And so their decision was, we're going to proceed forward with this process. Now, they understand that that's going to mean that now the congregation has to be educated. Um, there is a discernment process that most annual conferences are requiring. It may be 30 days. It may be 60 days where they want uh, the issue to be publicly out there for the congregation informational meetings held. Um, you know, the conference is probably going to want to come in and present their perspective on this and try to help people decide to stay with the United Methodist Church. That, that's, that's appropriate. They can do that. But likewise, a local church should be able to have someone from their regional WCA chapter, um, someone present the other perspective and why the church might want to consider separating from the United Methodist Church. And, and ultimately, it would culminate with a church conference 
under 2553, they, they'd have to get two-thirds of the votes of the professing members who are present and voting at that church conference in order to disaffiliate. Um, so so it's, a, it's a timing sort of thing. I, I think churches that have a desire to separate need to do their homework, need to prepare people, make sure people get the answers, help people understand what this is all about. Um, this is not about uh, how the church relates to LGBTQI people. Uh, certainly that's the presenting issue, but the issues go much deeper in terms of the way in which we understand scripture and its authority and how we uh, interpret it and apply it and whether it is the primary authority for Christian life or whether it's just one of many things. Uh, there are so many other issues, including the dysfunction in the United Methodist Church right now, the fact that we, uh, we don't have a system of governance anymore. We have chaos. And is that what our church wants to be with going forward? Yeah, that's, that is becoming more and more apparent as we go through this process. And I think a lot of people are discouraged. And we look at all of this and the, the numbers and how that's all going to play out. And some churches are very concerned about that. And I think one of the things that at least for me, keeps me going is to say, we have to hold up the vision of where we're going, not just what we're trying to get out of. Um, <laughs> I, you know, if you're held hostage, you always want to think about what freedom looks like, right? So that's, right. So that's kind of kind of where I, I see this at the moment. So speak to those who are considering and, and where people can get the best information about Global Methodist Church that they can distribute to people in their annual conference and in their local church? Sure. Well, the best source of information would be the Global Methodist Church's website, globalmethodist.org. Okay. There you, you find um, a host of different types of information, including um, information about its mission, its vision, how the name was arrived at, the logo. There's a whole section of frequently asked questions that is constantly being added to that provides the, the kind of information people are looking for. In that frequently asked questions, there's how, if my church wants to align with the Global Methodist Church, how do we do that? What are the steps? They're very simple, but they're spelled out there. If I'm a clergy person, um, licensed local pastor, deacon, elder, a minister of another denomination, how do I go about aligning? That's spelled out there with the forms and everything. Um, there's, a, there's an article section that has already probably 10, 12 articles that have been written since the first of the year that answer questions about the hopes and aspirations of the Global Methodist Church, these processes, um, what its future looks like, all of that there. Uh, in addition, there's a resources section that has the Transitional Book of Doctrines and Discipline in a searchable form. And by the way, the entire website it can be uh, translated into a number of different languages simply by choosing the language. So if you speak French, you can see everything in French. Okay, And um, um, the Transitional Book of Doctrines and Discipline is there so you can know everything about the polity and governance of the, of the Global Methodist Church. Uh, there's an introductory video there. Uh, and importantly, we're, we're, we're doing this uh, uh, taping of the podcast on Monday, March the 28th. 
Uh, tomorrow, I'll be meeting with uh, leaders from across the United States uh, for uh, an educational session and a training session to help people understand how to share about the Global Methodist Church. And we're going to be we're going to be releasing seven brochures tomorrow. Um, they'll be downloadable from the website on the resources page that are, are printable, that can be distributed to people, that talk about different aspects of the Global Methodist Church. And in addition, there's a, a PowerPoint that's been put together that will also be accessible there that take people through the key points about the Global Methodist Church. And that, that, that body of information will just continue to expand. That's really helpful. And we're, we're also having the Global Gathering coming yes. up here and the Global Legislative Assembly. Can you give us kind of a snapshot of what that's going to look like? I mean, what, what, will the global met, what will the Global Legislative Assembly work on this year? I think there's some question about that. We're all kind of like, now what? So sure. t- talk a little, bit about, a little bit about that. Well, yeah, the glo- I think this is one of the most important Global Legislative Assemblies that we've had. Uh, as, as our listeners are undoubtedly aware, the Wesleyan Covenant Association has been the primary... Uh, mover behind the launch of the Global Methodist Church. Now, we've had many other theological conservatives that have been part of this, but uh, a lion's share of the work has been done by the Wesleyan Covenant Association and by the delegates to the Global Legislative Assembly over the years. This year, there'll be two task force reports that will be adopted or presented for adoption by the delegates. One is on sexual holiness, wholeness, and brokenness, a holistic look at human sexuality and what honors and pleases God and where brokenness is and what the role of the church is in ministering to all of that. This is an important statement that uh, doesn't distinguish or, or, or single out a particular sexual sin, but acknowledges that there is sexual sin across the spectrum uh, of, of people's identities and ways of, of living. And, and then the second one is, I think, a very important. Um, a task force has worked for over a year to develop a comprehensive catechesis for the church, uh, and, and that will be presented and voted upon by the um, Global Legislative Assembly. Uh, both of these documents will then be sent on to the Transitional Leadership Council of the Global Methodist Church, ultimately will influence what happens at the convening general conference. Really, the, the WCA has served as a think tank, if you, were, if you, if you would, uh, for the Global Methodist Church going forward. So a lot of the, the deep thinking, the, the spade work that's necessary to uh, do a vibrant Wesleyan movement has come out of the WCA. And in addition, I'm confident that there'll be resolutions uh, that the Global Legislative Assembly will adopt, uh, encouraging churches to align with the uh, Global Methodist Church, celebrating the launch of the Global Methodist Church. Uh, and so that'll be the, the focus of the Global Legislative Assembly. The, the, the Global Gathering has been a high moment for our movement. This year, the theme is More Than Conquerors. And if there's any time we've needed a theme like that, this is it, because we are at that moment um, and where we need to be overcomers. Uh, Jesus has said, we will be victorious in this world, not going to be without difficulty, adversity, suffering. 
In fact, I think we, we become stronger when we move through those periods. We, we develop resilience. But um, we're going to focus on that theme of we are more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. It'll be a day of uh, great inspirational preaching, as always, messages. Uh, there'll be information shared at the Global Gathering about what's happening in the broader church and the Global Methodist Church. And um, uh, it'll just be a great day for people to come together. Of course, we have the live event at um, Kingsway Christian Church in Indianapolis. Uh, we, we have a, a, a limit of 1,250 seats there. So we're encouraging people to make their reservations quickly. Uh, we'll have, um, you know, we, we already have more than 50 simulcast sites. There'll be more that are, are, are added in the next month. Uh, so we encourage people to find a, a location near you that you could attend if you can't make it to Indianapolis. And we'll also be there with the podcast. Stephanie and I will both be there. Stephanie's actually one of the, the keynote speakers. So we're excited to hear that. And we'll we'll have our podcast set up there and we'll be doing all kinds of interviews. And as we did last year, we'll also have uh, the the talks. We'll post those as as part of our podcast uh, posting after after the event. So we really look forward to that. Any last words, Keith, before we before we wrap up here? Well, I just, stuff going on. Yeah, I just want to say to people that, um, you know, this this is an exciting season. It's a hard season but it's an exciting season. This is, um, you know, when we started this journey, um, I don't think our, our primary goal was to launch a new denomination. Uh, we hoped that the United Methodist Church would recognize the global position of Methodist, but that's not turned out. Even though the global Methodist and the United Methodist Church have spoken, we have folks in the United States who have thumbed their noses at that. And, uh, and so it's become necessary for us to do this. Uh, I believe this is a Holy Spirit inspired moment for us. And, and I think we have a unique opportunity to stand for Christ boldly in this season. And I'm excited about what's on the horizon uh, for the Global Methodist Church and for those who will be a vital part of it. Uh, I just want to say to people, um, there's not a, there's not an expiration date, uh, for joining the global Methodist church. If you can join early, come and be with us. If it's going to take you a little while, the door will still be open. The light will still be on and you'll, you'll be welcomed as if you were among the first people to get there. Um, this is a time for us to be wise and gentle at the same time. And I would say too, that for churches that are going to take a little bit longer, they can still contact WCA and Global Methodist Church for help and what the next steps are and how to how to try to Absolutely. move into that new We are not going to go away in terms of being a resource uh, for churches. Great. And clergy. Great. And lay people. Yeah. Well, Keith, thank you so much for this time. And uh, this has been very helpful. And uh, again, if you have questions, feel free to email us at podcast at wesleyandcovenant.org. You can also email info at globalmethodist.org for all your for all your uh, questions about the Global Methodist Church. Thank you again, Keith, and thank you for joining us here on the podcast. 